What does it mean to truly be yourself? How do you take classical music and make it your own? In this episode of the Houston Symphony's On The Music, we explore Mussorgsky's pictures at an exhibition as orchestrated by Maurice Ravel. Written at a time when classical music was still new to Russia, this masterpiece commemorates the life and work of one of Mussorgsky's friends. It stands as a tribute to the power of art and friendship to withstand the test of time. I'm Aurelie Demeray. And I am Carlos Botero, and you're listening to the Houston Symphony's On The Music. So who was Mussorgsky? That is an excellent question, and one that has puzzled scholars for many years. If you have heard anything about Modest Mussorgsky at all, the image you have of him is probably heavily influenced by one image, a portrait of the composer by the great Russian painter Ilya Repin. In Repin's famous portrait, we see a wild-looking, disheveled man who is clearly suffering from alcoholism. He's wearing ratty old bedclothes, a dark green robe covers his bloated body, and his face is puffy with dark circles under his eyes. His unwashed brown hair is a mess, as is his scraggly beard. The tip of his nose has a reddish hue from the effects of alcohol abuse. The only hint of genius is found in his pale blue eyes, which gaze intently up and to the left, as if he can see something the rest of us can't. Repin finished this striking portrait in 1881, just 10 days before Mussorgsky died at the age of 41. Although he had ups and downs throughout his life, during his final years, Mussorgsky had increasingly struggled with alcohol addiction, unemployment, and periodic homelessness, depending on a few close friends for material support. Even they had largely given up on Mussorgsky ever recovering, and few of them had ever really understood him as an artist. Repin's painting is a brilliant portrait, but is this how Mussorgsky should be remembered? It doesn't seem quite fair, does it? The image of Mussorgsky as a wild-eyed, intoxicated Russian genius has become part of the myth that surrounds the composer. The truth, however, is that Mussorgsky was a much more complex and interesting character. Compare Repin's image with a memory of what Mussorgsky was like 25 years earlier. He wore a little closely-fitting uniform, as neat as a pin, and had graceful and aristocratic manners. His conversation, spoken slightly through his teeth and interspersed with French sentences, was somewhat artificial, but was nonetheless quite aristocratic. There was a hint of foppishness, although a very moderate one. He was unusually courteous and well brought up. He would sit down at the piano and, affectedly throwing up his hands, would begin to play very sweetly, graciously, while all around him people were buzzing in chorus. Charmant, delicieux. It's almost like another person. How could one turn into the other? Life is full of unexpected twists and turns. As a young man, Mussorgsky seemed destined for an unremarkable life. The second son of a minor noble family from the provinces, he was headed for a career as a military officer and had already become a cadet in the elite Preobrazhensky regiment. Fortunately for music lovers, Mussorgsky quickly realized that he was not suited to military life. Instead, he wanted to be a composer. 
He had already developed a brilliant technique as a pianist and now began to seek out other young and ambitious musical minds. He soon fell in with a group of composers who would come to be known as the Kuchka, or the Mighty Handful. Sounds a bit grandiose, doesn't it? Well, they had big dreams. The composers of the Kuchka were a group of self-taught musical amateurs who wanted to create a Russian school of classical music. Today, when works by many Russian composers form the core of the classical repertoire, it is easy to forget that once upon a time there was no such a thing as Russian classical music. When Mazorsky was growing up, classical music was still largely seen as something foreign, something that was for other people, not Russians. Mazorsky and his friends really liked it, though, and wanted to prove that Russia could produce composers just as great as those from Germany, Italy, and France. But what would this Russian classical music sound like? For the Kushka, there was one trailblazer who pointed the way, Mikhail Glinka. Like Mussorgsky, Glinka was a Russian aristocrat who was essentially a talented amateur musician. In the 1830s, he had produced two groundbreaking Russian-language operas. These operas, infused with the native rhythms of the Russian language and the style of Russian folk music, seem to suggest that a truly Russian style of classical music could emerge. The members of the Kushka were eager to continue where Glinka had left off. They would regularly get together to play through famous works by Western European composers like Beethoven, Berlioz, and Schumann. Animated discussions would ensue as they debated the merits of these foreign models. I wonder what it would have been like to be there. Well, Alexander Borodin, Mazorsky's friend and a fellow Kuchka composer, recorded his typical scene from one of these musical get-togethers. Mazorsky started to talk enthusiastically about Schumann's symphonies, which at the time were totally unknown to me. He started sketching in excerpts of Schumann's symphony in E-flat major, and when he reached the development section, he stopped playing and said, well now, musical mathematics begins. Musical mathematics? What could Mazorsky have meant by that? Although they took inspiration from Western composers, in general, they disdained the traditional study of form, harmony, counterpoint, and musical development that was so prized in the West, especially by composition professors in conservatories. As self-taught composers, no one had ever forced them to learn the rules of composing fugues and sonatas, and they felt that such academic techniques often produced music that was formulaic and uninspired. More importantly, though, the members of the Kuchka believed that Russian music had to find its own way in order to become truly Russian. Imitating Western styles too closely would only produce poor imitations of Beethoven and Schumann, not great Russian music. Mazorsky went on like this, exploring music, composing various pieces, and discussing them with his friends in the Kuchka for several years. Then, in 1861, everything changed. In an effort to transition Russia to a more modern capitalistic economy, Tsar Alexander II declared the emancipation of the serfs. While it was certainly a good thing that millions of Russians were released from what was essentially a form of slavery, the reform was often economically disruptive, both for the freed serfs and their aristocratic old masters. Mussorgsky's family income, which had not been too high to begin with, was dramatically reduced. Certainly Mussorgsky couldn't have been too happy about that. 
Well, to his credit, Mazorsky never complained or spoke out against the emancipation, even though it meant that he now needed a job. His friends managed to find him part-time work in various departments of the imperial bureaucracy, which provided a meager income on which he could live, provided he had roommates. But that was just the first of Mazorsky's troubles. Indeed, a second disruption was perhaps even more threatening to the Kuchka. In 1863, the pianist and composer Anton Rubinstein founded the St. Petersburg Conservatory. A consummate professional who had traveled extensively throughout Europe, Rubinstein was dissatisfied with the amateurism of the Russian music scene and believed that the only way to raise the standard of musical life in Russia was to introduce a Western-style conservatory system. The Kushka was alarmed. Anton Rubinstein was trying to found a school that would teach the kind of musical mathematics they were against. Rubinstein, who was a prolific composer, wrote music that sounded a lot more like Mendelssohn than like Glink. His music wasn't Russian in any obvious way. With the backing of the Tsar's sister and other wealthy supporters, the new conservatory promised to be a powerful institution in Russian musical life. Would the scores of imitation Beethovens and Schumanns that the conservatory produced crowd out opportunities for the Kuchka? Were their dreams of a Russian style of classical music doomed? Well, Mazorksky, for one, was determined that the answer to such questions would be a resounding no. Indeed, it was at this time that Mazorksky came into his own as a composer. He developed a musical style all his own, a style that took the Kuchka's ideas even further than the others were willing to go. He rejected musical convention and came to detest anything routine. He wanted his music to tell stories, and not the usual idealized heroics and romance either. Instead, he sought the grittiness of a Dostoevsky novel. Above all, he believed that, quote, art is a means for conversing with people, not an abstract exercise in creating beauty. He was determined to be a thinking musician, fully engaged with what was going on in the world outside the concert hall. He sounds like quite a rebel. He wasn't the only one. Mussorgsky was inspired by a new circle of artistic friends and roommates that included not only musicians, but also writers, poets, and artists. One of his best friends was an artist, designer, and architect by the name of Viktor Hartmann. Like Mussorgsky, Hartmann sought to create a truly Russian style of art. Tragically, Hartmann died suddenly of an aneurysm at the age of 39, just as his work was beginning to win recognition. On hearing the news, Mussorgsky wrote to a friend, Vityushka Hartmann died in Moscow of an aneurysm. Such grief, all on suffering Russian art. What might Hartmann have gone on to do? Beautiful sounds are always beautiful, and they so captivate a little Russian at a dumpling feast that he gobbles up those dumplings. He is drenched in melted butter and tears, and he gulps down both the dumplings and the beautiful sounds. But something more substantial is needed. Art must embody not only beauty. A building is good when, in addition to a beautiful facade, it is well planned and solid. When one can sense the aim of the construction, and the whole head of the artist is visible. All this was in the perished Hartmann. Drenched in melted butter and tears? Mussorgsky was very fond of making food comparisons in his letters. Don't let the pirogis distract you, though. 
His point is that art needs real meaning, not just beauty, and he had lost an artistic ally with Hartmann's death. Two weeks after Hartmann's death, his friends and supporters organized a great exhibition of his works at the Imperial Academy of Arts. This was just as Mussorgsky saw his first, and during his lifetime only, public success as a composer with the premiere of his opera, Boris Godunov. Even with the activities surrounding the premiere, he managed to go see the exhibition. About a year later, after he had had more time to reflect, Mussorgsky found a way to process his grief by composing a piece of music, pictures at an exhibition. Mussorgsky wrote to his friend and steadfast champion, the influential critic Vladimir Stasov. The sounds and ideas hung in there, and now I am gulping and overeating. I can hardly manage to scribble it down on paper. I want to do it as quickly and reliably as possible. I considered it successful so far. He finished pictures in only 20 days. It was a set of short pieces for piano that depicted him, Mussorgsky, walking through the posthumous exhibition of Hartmann's works. Some of the movements, the individual pieces of the larger set, were musical depictions of specific artworks. Other linking movements showed Mussorgsky himself walking through the exhibition. Pictures was Mussorgsky's attempt to memorialize the works of his dead friend. For millennia, poets had boasted the power of their verses to bestow immortality on those they favored. Why shouldn't composers be able to bestow immortality too? To an extent, it worked. Many of the works by Hartmann that inspired pictures have been lost to the ravages of time. It is only through Mussorgsky's music that they are indeed remembered. But pictures of that exhibition is not only a memorial, it is also a kind of manifesto of Mussorgsky's musical beliefs. It is about Russian art and its relationship to the West. Mussorgsky symbolically used multiple languages when giving titles to the individual movements of pictures. Carefully arranging them, Mussorgsky juxtaposed quintessentially Russian images with pictures Harman created during his travels abroad. The pictures he selected often showed strange creatures that appealed to his love of the grotesque and bizarre, and he wrote equally strange music too much. Nothing in pictures is routine, not one note. Mussorgsky must have played through pictures privately for his friends, but no record of any public performance during his lifetime exists. You mean he wrote this great piece of music and only his friends got to hear it? That's right. Five years after Mussorgsky's untimely death, it was edited for publication, but even after it was published, it languished in obscurity. Those few who knew it, however, soon began to sense its orchestral potential. A Russian composer named Tushmalov orchestrated some of it in 1891, and in 1915, the British conductor Sir Henry Wood produced his own orchestration. But pictures only truly entered the repertoire when the French composer Maurice Ravel orchestrated it in 1922. The celebrated Russian conductor Serge Kuzovitsky wanted to bring Mussorgsky's work to a wider public, and he knew that Ravel, one of the world's most famous composers, was just the man for the job. Kuzovitsky approached Ravel with a commission, and he happily accepted. So what was Ravel like? Personality-wise, Ravel might at first glance seem Mussorgsky's total opposite, especially if you are imagining the Mussorgsky of Repin's portrait. Ravel was of slight stature and delicately built. He was meticulous about his appearance. He 
always slicked back his hair neatly and dressed in the latest fashions. His conversation was friendly and charming, but also a bit reserved. Musically, he was a conservatory-trained perfectionist who crafted flawless, elegant, and sensually alluring compositions. Upon closer inspection, though, he and Mazorksky did have a number of traits in common. Before his final decline, Mazorksky was also known for his well-groomed appearance and suave manners. Both had little interest in long-term romantic attachments, but shared a fascination with fairy tales and folklore. Though Ravel's musical style was as polished as Mazorksky's was coarse, Ravel had in fact been heavily influenced by Russian composers like Mazorksky since his days as a student. Just compare this bit from Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe with a snippet of Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. Hmm. Ravel probably didn't think anyone would notice that one. More important than small quotations, however, is that the Russian's daring harmonies and musical rule-breaking helped him realize his own musical style. You could say Ravel was already a big Mussorgsky fan. Certainly, and Mussorgsky's score couldn't have had better luck in finding an orchestrator. Then, as today, Ravel was renowned as one of history's most gifted orchestrators, which begs the question, what is orchestration exactly? Orchestration is all about taking musical ideas and giving them to the right instruments. In this case, Ravel had to take music written for the piano and transfer it to the instruments of the orchestra. The task at hand was quite familiar to him. He would often take one of his own piano pieces and transform it into an orchestral piece. Although others have orchestrated pictures at an exhibition since, Ravel's version remains the most often performed today. And it is fascinating to see how he took Mazorksky's piano piece and transformed it with the colors of the orchestra. Well, let's get to the piece already. Very well. Pictures begins with a seemingly simple melody, which Mazorksky called Promenade in Modo Russico. Even Mussorgsky readily admitted this was a, quote, curious title. Promenade is French for a walk, and in modo russico is Italian for in the Russian style. This theme is a kind of musical self-portrait. It depicts Mussorgsky walking into the exhibition and immediately introduces subjectivity into the music. As we hear the music, we see it through Mussorgsky's eyes. The theme itself, despite its apparent simplicity, has a number of interesting features. Firstly, it has a very irregular meter, or pulse. Most Western classical music is written in fairly simple, regular meters. The underlying pulse of the music might be the 1, 2, 1, 2, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, or 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4. Listen carefully to the pulse of the promenade theme. It goes one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five, six. 
A measure of five beats alternates with a measure of six beats. That's something they probably wouldn't have taught at the St. Petersburg Conservatory. While all great composers play with meter in interesting ways, this is very unusual in the classical tradition. What could have inspired Mussorgsky to write such an irregular melody? Irregular meters became increasingly common in Russian music of this era. Composers like Mussorgsky may have been inspired by the natural rhythms of the Russian language or by folk music that used irregular meters. There is also another way that this melody draws on folk music. The melody begins in one voice alone, then it is repeated with other voices, providing a harmonic accompaniment. This creates a kind of a call-and-response effect that imitates traditional Russian folk choruses. One singer will begin, and then others will join in, sometimes improvising harmonies. Hmm, I can totally hear that. You and Mussorgsky could, but back in the day, others often didn't. At the conservatory, harmonic classes would have been based on Johann Sebastian Bach's harmonizations of traditional Lutheran chorales, not on Russian folk singing. Over time, music teachers deduce rules to help students learn to master the kind of smooth, full, balanced harmonies that we hear in Bach. These rules are part of what make classical music sound, well, classical. So Mussorgsky was kind of breaking the rules. Yes, he was. Mussorgsky's contemporaries often criticize his music for breaking these rules. Having never been to conservatory, Mussorgsky never formally learned them, although he must have picked up on some of the principles of classical music by playing through famous symphonies with the Kuchka. In pictures, we can hear a blending of these classical influences with traditional Russian folk music, the sort of music he would have heard growing up, but also some original sounds that are all Mussorgsky's own. So from the beginning, Mussorgsky is showing us who he is, a thoroughly Russian mixture of ideas from old Russia and the West, a promenade in modo russico. When Ravel orchestrated pictures, he decided to give this opening melody to the brass, led by a solo trumpet. The trumpet seems to give the music a grand ceremonial feel. It is easy to imagine Mussorgsky walking into the great hall of the Imperial Academy of Arts in St. Petersburg, where Harman's works were exhibited. To tell us more about this famous trumpet solo, we have Mark Hughes, the Houston Symphony's principal trumpet player. Hi, Mark. Hi. Mark, you have a student that is preparing this particular solo. What sort of advice would you give him in terms of technicalities or the expression? What would you tell him? Uh, when I play this, um, I'm thinking of literally walking through an art gallery as if I'm a docent showing them through the art gallery. For the opening promenade, it's, it's a very difficult solo to, to understand where is the peak of the phrase. And so when I'm teaching, I literally use and break up the measures in smaller pieces and have them literally see that you need to lead that phrase either to like the eighth or the ninth beat of the 11 full beats of music. And if you do that, then the phrase actually goes somewhere and then has a shape of a normal phrase where it's getting louder all the way to that point and then gets softer a little at the end with a taper. Once someone starts to think of it musically, a lot of the technical issues that you battle with this and phrasing takes care of itself. We'll hear more from Mark later. 
Ravel certainly seemed to think that the trumpet was the perfect instrument for a number of Mussorgsky's ideas in this piece. Ravel also puts some of the basic principles of orchestration on display in Promenade. In general, orchestration should help clarify the structure of a piece of music, all the way from the biggest section down to the individual phrases. For instance, when the melody changes, Ravel changes from brass to strings. The changing instrumental color add interest and variety, but they also clarify the shape and structure of the music, making it easy for the ear to follow. This is what good orchestration is all about. The promenade melody reappears throughout pictures as Mussorgsky walks from one work of art to another and acts as a unifying force throughout the piece. As the piece progresses, its appearances become less frequent as Mussorgsky is increasingly absorbed in the images he sees. Soon we come to the first picture, Nomus. Nomus is Latin for gnome. Stasov, the famous critic I mentioned before, tells us that this movement was inspired by the design for a nutcracker. A fantastic lame figure on crooked little legs, fashioned after Harman's design. Unlike Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker, this one doesn't turn into a handsome prince. Mussorgsky imagines this unfortunate creature stumbling about on his crooked little legs. This gnome is a perfect example of the kind of grotesque imagery that fired Mussorgsky's imagination. As an artist, Mussorgsky was just as interested in the strange and the ugly as he was in the beautiful. Mussorgsky came up with some rather strange music to depict this strange creature. The opening figure is disorienting. The opening notes don't outline any particular chord. Ravel adds to the strangeness of this music by scoring the four low strings of woundwinds, creating a murky, blended sound. In a nice touch, the sustained notes go to sour-sounding low horns. What makes this music so strange and uncomfortable, even creepy? In most classical music, before Mussorgsky, there was always a clear tonal center, one note that was a stable point of rest. For instance, if you hear this... You know that the next chord should be this. Because this note is the tonal center. In many passages throughout pictures, Mussorgsky obscures the tonal center of the music to create feelings of tension or dislocation. In general, Mussorgsky's harmonies tend to be more open-ended than those of the classical music that came before. Instead of driving towards a goal, Mussorgsky is more interested in harmonies as shifting colors. At last, the music of Nomus finds its tonal center and something resembling a melody appears. It still sounds strange, however. The harmony has settled into E-flat minor. But if you listen to the bass line, you will hear this. This highly dissonant interval is just there, lurking in the bass line. 
Ravel draws attention to it with slightly string glissandos, adding to the creepiness of the atmosphere. Next, we hear a heavy plotting idea that Ravel gives to the woodwinds. This idea further disorients us through its chromaticism. Normally, music tends to stick to normal major and minor scales. These scales have a built-in tonal center. If you add in the notes in between the notes of these normal scales, though, you get the chromatic scale. Unlike major and minor scales, the chromatic scale has no clear beginning or end. Usually composers would judiciously use the notes from the chromatic scale as expressive ornaments or as tools to pull the music to a new tonal center. If you present the chromatic scale without much context, though, it can be disorienting. Mussorgsky's new idea fits together perfectly with a descending chromatic scale, as we hear when it becomes a tortured outburst with no clear end in sight. The no melody briefly returns. We hear our shrill cry from muted brass. The gnome vanishes. Well, that was intense. That seems to have been Mussorgsky's reaction as well. A mellower version of the promenade theme returns as Mussorgsky wanders about, looking for another picture to catch his eye. One soon das. The next movement is Il Vecchio Castello, Italian for the Old Castle. Although the original picture has been lost, it was based on an architectural sketch of an old castle into which Victor Hartmann inserted a tiny troubadour for scale. As far as we know, the Italian setting was all in Mussorgsky's imagination. Nevertheless, the gentle rhythms of the Siciliano, played by a solo bassoon over low strings, take us away to Italy. Soon we hear the troubadour song. Ravel gave this melody to the saxophone, creating one of the most famous solos for the instrument. To tell us more about the saxophone solo, we have Masahito Sugihara. Masahito is currently assistant professor of saxophone at Sam Houston State University and has often joined the Houston Symphony in works featuring the saxophone. Welcome, Mas. Well, thank you for having me. Saxophone, I think, is a really uh, lyrical instrument with a flexible tone, just like a human voice. Uh, so I think Ravel wanted the saxophone to portray the uh, troubadour singing. What I, uh, I'm thinking about really is uh, kind of the image that I have of this old castle, really quiet, and you can uh, almost smell the moss growing. So I'm trying to convey uh, maybe like a sense of uh, nostalgia uh, with my solo. The saxophone solo is just one of several deft touches in Ravel's orchestration. When a new phrase appears in a higher register, Ravel scores it for divisi strings. 
Divisi is Italian for divided. Normally, the strings are divided into five parts. Here, Ravel divides them into eight parts by splitting the violins and violas. This practice of splitting a string section into multiple parts is called divisi writing, and it gives the strings an almost shimmering sound. When the troubadour melody returns, Ravel subtly changes its color by giving it to pairs of doubled woodwinds. Flute and English horn. Flute and clarinet. Oboe and bassoon. In the end, the melody returns to the saxophone. Ravel makes one small change to Mussorgsky's original. He extends the last note by one measure, allowing the saxophone to fade into silence. Nice. This Ravel guy seems to know what he's doing. The promenade melody now returns, reinvigorated and rendered in bold, brash orchestral colors by Ravel. It soon leads to a new picture, Tuileries. During Hartmann's travels through Europe, he went to Paris and produced a now lost crayon drawing of the Tuileries Gardens. Even today, the Tuileries Gardens are a fashionable spot in the heart of Paris near the banks of the Seine, a place to see and be seen. For scale, Hartmann added a few small figures of children playing with their nurse to the sketch. Like the troubadour in Il Vecchio Castello, it was these figures that seized Mussorgsky's imagination. The music depicts the children's games. An early champion of Mussorgsky's music, Rosa Newmarch commented that the opening melody may represent the children's teasing calls of Nyanya, Nyanya, or Nanny, Nanny in Russian. If you have noticed that this music has a particularly bright character, it's not just due to Ravel's light scoring for woodwinds. Listen to how the opening sounds if we change a single note. Huh, it sounds more normal, but not as interesting. It does. Instead of using a normal major scale for this melody, Mussorgsky is using a mode. A mode? What's that? Remember how a major scale sounds like it has a natural beginning and an end? 
Well, what would happen if you started or ended on a different note? Say, the fourth note. Then you have a mode. Modes are essentially scales that use the same notes as a measure scale, but start and end on a different note. In the Renaissance and earlier, modes were common in Western European music, but died out in the Baroque as composers felt the pull of more gold-driven major and minor scales. By the time Mussorgsky wrote pictures, they had been in disuse for centuries. Even though this mode is in fact quite old, Mussorgsky's use of it sounds fresh and new. That's different, but I like it. Even without conventional goal-driven harmonies, Mussorgsky builds tension by sending the melody higher, changing the harmonies faster and faster. The first harmony lasts four bars, the second three, the third two. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, one. And we're back where we started. Nothing about this music is routine. And yet, it sounds so natural. Anyone can break all the rules of art and create something that turns out to be a mess. It takes a genius like Mussorgsky to cast aside the old rules and forge his own instead. There is a contrasting episode in Tuileries, which one commentator has likened to the false contrition of naughty children. When the harmony changes, Ravel introduces the color of the clarinet to exquisite effect. The reverie is cut short as the children resume their games. The music scampers away, ending as innocently as it began. The next movement appears immediately, without an intervening promenade. Describing this movement in a letter to a friend, Mussorgsky wrote, Right between the eyes. In both Russian and Polish, the word bitlo means cuddle. Letleg is French for the cart, and Sandomirsko indicates that this cart is from Sandomir, a province in modern-day Poland that Victor Harmont visited. This picture does not survive, but the image Mussorgsky had in mind was likely a large cart pulled by cattle and driven by a weather-beaten peasant, engaged in the unending toil of working the black earth. The right-between-the-eyes comment refers to the surprising contrast the fortissimo beginning of this movement makes with the quiet, rather cute ending of Tuileries. The effect seems a precursor of what the Soviet film director Sergei Eisenstein would call dialectical montage. In dialectical montage, two contrasting scenes in a film are immediately juxtaposed with one another, and contrast between them is intended to generate new ideas in the mind of the viewer. This is the first of several musical montages Mussorgsky put into pictures. The juxtaposition of happy children playing in a fashionable park in Paris with the grinding toil of a Polish peasant is certainly striking. There are so many contrasts inherent in these images. Wealth and poverty, youth and age, city and field, joy and pain, France and Russia. Mussorgsky reinforces this contrast musically. Where Tuileries is colorful, light, high-pitched and soft, 
Bitlaw is dark, heavy, low, and loud. Well, that last contrast of soft and loud got a bit lost in translation between Mussorgsky's original and Ravel's orchestration. Which prompts an important question. Did Ravel change what Mussorgsky wrote? Well, not intentionally. After Mussorgsky's death, Pictures was edited and prepared for publication by his friend and fellow composer Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. Rimsky-Korsakov was a great composer in his own right, and the two of them had both been part of the Kuchka in their earlier days. Later, however, Rimsky-Korsakov took a job at the St. Petersburg Conservatory, where he actually learned all the rules that the Kuchka had disdained, often the night before he had to actually teach them to his students. Treachery! <laughs> Indeed, it was quite a change of tune on his part. After Mussorgsky died, Rimsky-Korsakov sincerely wanted to ensure that his friend's music survived. Unfortunately, this meant that he didn't hesitate to correct some of Mussorgsky's unorthodox passages. And he generally had no qualms about inserting his own ideas into Mussorgsky's works. Fortunately, pictures remained almost unscathed under Rimsky's editorial eye, with this one exception. Rimsky-Korsakov changed the fortissimo at the beginning of Bidlow to a pianissimo. Why did he do such a thing? Most likely, he wanted to create the effect of a cart approaching from a distance, passing by and then fading away. It might not have the right between the eyes impact of starting loud, but it is still a very evocative effect. To be fair to Rimsky, he was one of the few people who heard Mussorgsky play pictures himself when he was still alive. Could it be that Mussorgsky performed it in different ways, depending on how he felt? We will never know. All that is for certain is that Mussorgsky's manuscript says fortissimo, but Rimsky-Korsakov's edition says pianissimo. In any case, Ravel was working from Rimsky-Korsakov's edition, so he didn't know that any change had indeed been made. The crescendo he created with the orchestra is masterful. Ravel gives the melody to the tuba, this is not the usual ultra-low brass instrument most of us know, however, but a slightly higher, smaller French version of the tuba that was indeed common in Ravel's day. Many orchestras now use the similar-sounding euphonium to perform this solo instead. Accompanied by bassoons, contrabassoons, and divisi cellos on basses, the tuba solo starts low and gradually gets louder as the cart approaches. When a new phrase appears, the other strings and woodwinds enter gradually, becoming higher and louder. For a moment, the music pulls back. Then, the main theme returns fortissimo, as loud as possible. The music then gradually dies away as the cart recedes into the distance. 
Bidlow has a powerful climax, but wisely, Ravel chose not to use the entire orchestra, leaving out the trumpets and trombones. A lesser orchestrator might have thrown in the kitchen sink here, but Ravel is sensitive to color above all. The brilliance of the trumpets and trombones would have brightened the dark sounds of Bidlow too much. Plus, he wants to save the full orchestra for later. Once Bidlow fades away, the promenade melody returns, this time in a minor key, as Mussorgsky reflects on the images he has just seen. Then, something catches his eye. The ballet of the unhatched chicks. But uh, how can unhatched chicks dance a ballet? It certainly is strange. Mussorgsky's friend Vladimir Stasov informs us that in 1870, Hartmann designed the costumes for the staging of the ballet Trilby at the Mariensky Theater in St. Petersburg. In the cast were a number of boy and girl pupils from the theater school, arrayed as canaries. Others were dressed up as eggs. Hartmann's designs for these costumes actually survive. The children are shown wearing large eggshells with holes for their arms and legs. Their heads are covered with helmet-like chick masks. And on their legs, they wear stockings with scaly legs and clawed feet. Little feathers stick out from their shoulder blades. As one of the more bizarre spectacles to cross the Marinsky stage, it was right up Mussorgsky's alley. He came up with some equally bizarre harmonies to conjure this chick's strange chirping. A normal harmonization of the melody might have sounded something like this. Instead, we get this. This melody is supposedly in F major. We do hear F as the tonal center. But Mussorgsky throws in a bunch of notes that aren't in the F major scale. That's part of what makes this music sound so strange. Ravel orchestrates the chick's fantastical chirps with flutes, oboes, clarinets, and harps. Occasionally muted string pizzicatos and soft cymbals add a little extra bite. The chirping builds up to a shrill shriek leading to a contrasting middle section. The bright sound of the celesta adds a little extra sparkle. The trilling violins in Ravel's orchestration can only be described as feathery, and the jerky motion of the melody imitates the strutting of the chicks. The chirping music returns, One last shriek, and the chicks exit the stage. In another of Mussorgsky's musical montages, we are immediately introduced to the next picture. Two pictures, in fact. Samuel Goldenberg and Schmuel. Vladimir Stasov explains, Victor Harmant gave Mussorgsky two of his sketches from real life, those of the rich and the poor Jew. Mussorgsky was most delighted with the expressiveness of these pictures. Like the lost picture that likely inspired Bitlow, these two portraits come from the time Harmant spent in Sandomir. Mussorgsky likely invented their names himself. Mussorgsky had a real interest in Jewish culture and music. He very much enjoyed the music making of some of his Jewish neighbors in the 1860s, 
And during a tour of southern Russia in 1879, he wrote, In Odessa, I went to holy services in two synagogues and was in raptures. I have clearly remembered two Israelite themes. At the same time, anti-Semitism was rampant throughout the 19th century in Russia. And disappointingly, Mussorgsky was not above hurling racist invective against enemies who happened to have Jewish ancestry, particularly Anton Rubinstein, the founder of the St. Petersburg Conservatory. Mussorgsky was a complex character. While his positive comments about Jews and Jewish culture certainly don't undo the negative ones, it is to his credit that he could at times look past the prejudices with which he was raised. It seems that for Mussorgsky, Jewish people were an integral part of Russia, and he wanted to include them in pictures. First, we meet Samuel Goldenberg. Hartmann's portrait shows a man of about middle age with a long, full beard and a first skull cap. Depicted in profile against a dark background, he is clearly posing for the portrait and looks fixedly off to the right. Mussorgsky gives him a deep, booming voice, which Ravel's scores for a blend of strings and woodwinds. His melody uses a scale full of augmented seconds. That's this interval, here. He likely did this because scales with augmented seconds were common in Jewish folk music. Samuel's music is unaccompanied, giving it a dry, gruff character. Before long, we meet Shmuel. Shmuel is a Yiddish version of the name Samuel. By giving these characters variants on the same name, Mussorgsky further draws attention to the gulf between the well-to-do Samuel and the poor Shmuel. In Hartman's picture, we see an old man with white hair and beard. He's outside, leaning against a brick wall with a cane in his hands. He looks down, his face in a grimace. Next to him is a sack with an old hat resting on top of it. Could these indeed be all of his worldly possessions? The melody Mussorgsky wrote for him is full of repeated notes that depict his shivering or chattering teeth. These repeated notes are very difficult to perform in the original piano version. In the orchestral version, Ravel turned them into an equally difficult trumpet solo. To tell us more about Schmuel's trumpet solo, we have once again Houston Symphony principal trumpet Mark Hughes. I will tell you, it, when you first see this as a trumpeter, uh, it is so untrumpet-like. The trumpet solo, I think he picked the trumpet to, to play this because it's very difficult. And we sound like we're begging and hoping to God we get through it. And it's because it's written in a very high tessitura. Everybody that I know of plays it now. We play it on a piccolo trumpet. Originally, it was played on a D trumpet, which is still smaller than what we normally use. But this, the piccolo trumpet does make it a fairly, I won't say it makes it easy. It just makes it a tad easier. Soon, Samuel and Shmuel, melodies collide in what appears to be some sort of confrontation. In the end, Samuel Goldenberg seems to brush Shmuel aside, indifferent to his plight. In Mussorgsky's original piano version, next came one final promenade movement, taking us to the next picture. Ravel omitted it. Why? 
Was this also Rimsky-Korsakov's editing? Nope, it was in Rimsky-Korsakov's edition. Then why did Ravel leave it out? Well, I guess you'd have to ask him. Unfortunately, he's dead. Maybe he ran out of different ways to orchestrate it. Well, given Ravel, that's unlikely. He probably just didn't think it was necessary. Regardless, at this point, there are no more interruptions between pictures. Now, the promenade melody starts to appear within other movements as Mussorgsky is increasingly drawn into the works of art. Well, on to the next picture then. Next, we are back in France, this time at the marketplace in the town of Limoges. The picture for this movement has been lost, but Stasov tells us the music illustrates the crowd shrieking, disputing, chattering, and quarreling in the marketplace. The music vividly depicts this hustle and bustle. Ravel puts on a dazzling display, passing the melody from one instrument to another in a whirlwind of shifting colors. In terms of rhythmic poles, this is one of the most interesting pictures. The piece begins in a neat 4-4 meter. 1-2-3-4 But the dissonant shouts in the marketplace throw the music off balance. We briefly go into 3-4. 1-2-3, 1-2-3, 1-2-3. The commotion seems to careen out of control. But the main theme reappears just in time. Although marked slower, the end of the movement features so many notes that it sounds faster. The horns especially seem to go crazy. Suddenly we are plunged into another world. In the most stark of Mussorgsky's musical montages, we are instantly transported from the world of the living to that of the dead. This movement is titled Catacome Sepulchrum Romanum, which is Latin for catacombs, Roman sepulchre. The setting is actually Paris, although the word Roman may refer to the Roman Catholicism practice in France. Hartmann's image, a watercolor, survives. It depicts the catacombs of Paris, a series of underground chambers that hold the skeletal remains of more than six million people. We see two men in top hats whispering to each other, accompanied by a third man holding a lantern. Its light illuminates rows of neatly arranged human skulls. Surely, seeing this picture would have reminded Mussorgsky of his friend's untimely death. The music Mussorgsky wrote for catacombs is some of the strangest in the repertoire. A series of often dissonant chords rings out in the darkness. The alternation of loud and soft is a kind of written-out reverberation, suggesting the cavernous underground space. As a ghostly tam-tam fades into nothing, the music finds its way to a tonal center, B minor. Though we are still in the catacombs, Mussorgsky marks what follows as a new movement with a new title, that is, fittingly, in Latin, cum mortuus in lingua mortua, with the dead in a dead language. Surprisingly, the promenade theme returns as high tremolo violins evoke the flickering light illuminating the skulls. 
Is Mussorgsky imagining himself in the catacombs? The music brightens somewhat as the key of B major emerges. Ravel adds just a hint of the heavenly with a few understated arpeggios in the harp. It would seem that Mussorgsky has found a kind of peace. This peaceful mood is immediately shattered by the next movement. In catacombs and cum mortuis, death was in a faraway land, an object of quiet contemplation. Now it is embodied in a monstrous, immediate and very Russian form, Baba Yaga. In Russian folklore, Baba Yaga is a witch who flies through the woods on a mortar and pestle, searching for children to eat. She lives in a hut on hen's legs that stalks the land in pursuit of victims. This movement was inspired by one of Hartmann's surviving pencil sketches, a design for an ornate clock in the shape of Baba Yaga's hut. In the music, you can hear the clock. With each second, the witch and mortality draw inexorably closer. There is a brief, uneasy respite. Alas, we can only hide from Baba Yaga momentarily. Soon the strange clucking noises of the hut return, scored by Ravel for pizzicato strings, winds, and xylophone. Then Baba Yaga returns. Suddenly, the ghastly specter of Baba Yaga is banished by a resplendent crawl. We have reached the final picture, the Great Gate at Kiev. Hartmann's pencil and watercolor design for a monumental gate at Kiev survives. The design shows a grand, arched entryway. Its columns are halfway sunk into the ground, as if they had stood for centuries. Attached to the gate is a small chapel and a bell tower with a dome in the shape of a Slavonic helmet. Before St. Petersburg and Moscow, Kiev was the first capital of Russia, the holy city where Christianity was first brought to the lands of the Russian Empire. This melody alternates with the Russian hymn, As You Are Baptized in Christ, scored softly by Ravel for woodwinds. We then hear the distinctive sound of Russian church bells emanating from the gate's tower. As you can hear in this field recording, Russian church bells sound very different from Western ones. 
The bells are struck by hammers, with the higher ones struck faster and the lower ones slower, forming dissonant harmonies and complex layered rhythms. Mussorgsky brilliantly imitates this sound, and Ravel creates ringing sonorities with tubular bells, horns, tuba, harp, bass clarinet, and violins. Above the ringing bells, the promenade theme appears once more. Mussorgsky appears to us one more time, now fully in the world of the pictures. At last, Ravel unleashes the full power of the orchestra for the climatic return of the Great Gate team. Hartmann's Gate was never built, but here, his and Mussorgsky's vision of a truly Russian art becomes reality. Whenever pictures at an exhibition is performed, their creativity, imaginations, and feelings are brought to life again. I cannot help but think that in composing this, Mussorgsky had in mind the verses from Pushkin's poem, Exegi Monumentum. I've raised a monument not built by human hands. The people's path to it cannot be overgrown. With defiant head far loftier it stands than Alexander's columned stone. No, I shall not die entirely, my soul in the hallowed lyre, shall outlive my dust and escape decay, and shall be renowned whilst on this mortal earth even one poet lives to sing. On the Music is a production of the Houston Symphony. For more episodes and a full list of credits, visit houstonsymphony.org slash on the music. Thank you for listening.